This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Do not, <clears throat> do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those who dev devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the, the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So in the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in speaking to us through your word. We pray that you would be with us as we seek to understand this passage, which is a bit more difficult for us to receive than others. I pray that you would give us clarity and understanding. We pray that you would help us to apply this to our lives, that we might glorify you in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the Word of God is good and glorious. It is beneficial and necessary for us to have a right understanding of who God is and what he requires of us. God's word instructs us about what we ought to expect from this life and from our God and from ourselves. That said, there are parts of God's word which are difficult for us to understand or perhaps not so difficult to understand, but maybe difficult for us to hear. Um, but all of God's word is good and instructive. All of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, instructing all of Scripture. Even uh, the Old Testament points to Christ, and so it is necessary for us to understand these things that are difficult for us to understand or difficult for us to hear, that we might be built up in our faith and encouraged in our faith. And two such themes that are perhaps less familiar to us come together in this passage that we have here in Hebrews chapter 13, specifically uh, the themes of Old Testament sacrifice practice and the Israelite camp. Uh, but these things are given to us for our good. God is showing us an important aspect of our life in Christ. And so we need to pay close attention to it. And these two themes in our verse come together to show us, to instruct us in, in an important truth. And that is specifically this, that our path to glory is in Christ Jesus. But to be in Christ Jesus means that we must go to him, which means that we must leave our worldly hope on our way to him. So we, in order to understand the passage correctly, we will in, consider two Israelite practices closely to help us get the right understanding of the passage. And the first has to do with the sacrificial 
uh, offerings that God commanded for Israel. No doubt you know that God had given the Israelites sacrificial laws, uh, many different types of sacrifices that they were uh, supposed to offer. There were sin offerings and peace offerings and free will offerings. There were offerings and sacrifices on particular feast days. There were burnt offerings, grain offerings, bulls, goats, birds, all sorts of different types of sacrifices. There were sacrifices that were used for purifying uh, the, or preparing the priests to be able to serve, to sanctify the priests for service. And there were sacrifices to prepare God's uh, presence, the, the, the tabernacle, for, uh, for worship. But what you may not be quite as familiar with is the specific process for um, these sacrifices. And God gives us uh, most of these sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus chapter 1, at the very beginning of this book, God gives us three examples of a burnt offering, types of burnt offerings. Uh, an example of a, a bull, a lamb, and a bird offering. And the process is roughly the same. Um, and what, what, what God commanded was that the Israelites were to bring the animal to the entrance to the tent of meeting to offer up the animal. And they were to lay their hand on the animal to, so that the worshiper was identifying themselves with the animal. Then the animal was to be slaughtered right there. And then the priest would take the blood and put it on the altar. He would either place it on the altar or paste it, as some translations say, or in some cases would sprinkle the sides of the altar with the blood. Um, and then the priest would start the fire of the altar, they would arrange the wood, and they would take the animal, or at least most of the animal, and put it on the altar for this burnt offering, and it would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But then the sacrifice ended in a way that may surprise you. Then God commanded that it was a, to be a food offering. And we see what that means in Leviticus chapter 6, where God commanded the priests to take the charred animal and they were to eat it. They were to eat this sacrifice uh, when it was the, the conclusion of it. In Leviticus chapter 2, um, there was a similar pattern given for grain offerings. So the Israelite was to bring grain to give to the Lord and they were to take a handful of grain the rest of the grain was the priest portion. And from that handful of grain, they were to mix it with oil and frankincense. And then the priest was to take that mixture, put it on the altar. And after it was cooked, that was a food offering, which the priests would eat. But why, oh why, would God have the priests eat the sacrifice? There were three purposes for that. The first was... It was identifying the priest with the sacrifice, the completed sacrifice. Remember, a priest is a mediator between God and the people. And the people were bringing their sacrifice to God through the priest. The priest would literally internalize the sacrifice. It would become a part of him. And this mediator ate the sacrifice on behalf of the people identifying that the sacrifice had been completed, and also symbolically on behalf of God, that this meal 
or this, this meal was symbolizing the sacrifice was completed and accepted. Secondly, it visually demonstrated to the people that God had accepted the sacrifice and there was peace with God. This was a fellowship meal where God was feasting with his people as a result of the completed sacrifice. And third, it demonstrated the lavish nature of God's grace. Because here was an event where the violence of slaughtering an animal and spilling its blood on the altar was transformed into a nourishing and holy celebratory meal between God and his people. And these food offerings were commanded by God in most sin offerings, but not all. If uh, Leviticus 6 said that if the, if the blood was brought by the priests into the holy place, which meant that he was bringing the blood into the place to purify the holy place, then in that case, the, the uh, animal was not to be eaten. Instead, the animal was to be taken outside the camp and burned completely. It was not to be eaten. But the food, the meal was never the point. It was never the point. Our passage says, it says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good to be, for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We don't know specifically what teachings, diverse and strange teachings, were at risk of leading the people astray, but it seems to have something to do with this ritual observance, this external worship, uh, the, the practice of worship and being confused between the act of even eating the food and the actual grace that was being conferred. It's so easy for us as people who worship in the body and partake in worship to be confused between the works we are doing in worship and the grace that is actually at play. To, to, to miss Christ even in the midst of worshiping Christ because we're so focused on the act. And in fact, this distinction between worship, the elements of worship and the grace conferred, that's an error that um, is, is seen in the Roman Catholic Church today in their view of the sacraments, a distinct, a, uh, which is usually described with the view ex opere operato. It's a Latin phrase which means in the work worked, which basically means that there is such a tight association between the sacrament and the grace involved in the sacrament that to have the grace, you must have the sacrament. And when you participate in the sacrament, the grace is conferred. So, if a child is baptized, they are being baptized into Christ salvifically, with salvation in that event. When we eat the Lord's Supper, it is a physical representation, we are, we are actually feasting on Christ's body and blood. The bread becomes flesh, the, the wine becomes blood. We are, we are truly feeding on Christ. There's true benefit there. But our passage says, it's, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. The reformers wisely 
describe the, the sacramental relationship as one of a sign and a seal. Two parts. There is an association, but a distinction. If you think about a sign, if you see a sign outside that says, Welcome to Prosper, that sign is not prosper. That sign is pointing to prosper. But a sign can be false. We could put that sign in McKinney, and it would say, Welcome to Prosper, and that would be a false sign. These elements that we have, these things that we have, they are signs pointing to a spiritual reality. But at the same time, they said it is a seal, meaning when these sacraments are received by faith, God is spiritually working the grace in them. But that grace is not so tied to the sacrament that if you neglect the sacrament, you fail to receive the grace. Nor is it tied so tightly that when you partake of that sacrament, you receive the grace. It must be received by grace through faith that God communicates these things to us. And so our, our confession says that it is a grievous sin to neglect these graces because God has commanded us to partake in the sacraments. But it is not grievous in the sense where the grace is not conferred. God communicates his grace through faith, by his grace, um, when he will. And the, and the sacraments are signs and seals of those realities. The second practice that we need to understand is that of the Israelite camp. So not only did the Israelites travel together, they also camped together. They set up their camp, and the camp was a place of safety and security, but it was also a place of acceptance and community. Many of the Old Testament laws required, commanded the people to put somebody out of the camp when they sinned. They were to send them out. It was a, it was a mean of reproaching them for their sin. The, the camp was to be a holy community. And sometimes that putting out was a temporary thing for a series of days, in which point they were brought back into the camp. Other times it was more permanent, where they were cut off from their people. And of course, the most extreme sense was cutting off through stoning, cut off from the land of the living, as they were brought outside the camp and put to death. But what's interesting is that that uh, exclusion from the camp not, didn't just happen with people, but actually happened with God himself. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he received the tabernacle blueprints and God's law, when he came down, the people had made a golden calf. And... Um, that golden calf was a rejection of God himself. They had chosen this idol over their God. And in Exodus chapter 33, which is right after that incident, is the first time Moses sets up his, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And what it says is that Moses would go and set up the tent outside the camp. Outside the camp. Because the people had rejected God, Moses said, God will go outside the camp. And it wasn't until the book of Numbers where God, in his grace, 
reconstructed the camp around his tent so that the, t- the, camp, the camp became a place of blessing and acceptance. But brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ was taken outside the gate or outside the camp to die, and he did it for you and for me. And that's what our passage says, and there are, there are a, a series of things that we can learn from that important aspect. The first is that he was taken outside of the place of, the, outside the camp because of us. Isaiah 53 says that he was cut off from the land of the living. He was taken outside the city gate and put to death for the transgression of his people, stricken because of them. He did this willingly. He went like a lamb before the shearer, lamb to the slaughter. He was silent. He willingly went outside the camp for us. Second thing we can say is that as in the days of Moses, when the people rejected God, so in the days of Jesus, the people rejected their God again. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And just as Moses, the mediator of his covenant, set up the tabernacle outside the camp, Jesus set up his tent, his body, outside the camp. That's what our Savior has done as a response of being rejected by the people. The third thing is we can say is that in so doing, Jesus demonstrated that he was the perfect atoning sacrifice. So the, the sacrifices that purified, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the, the, the day of atonement was this great one day a year sacrifice that where the high priest would purify the holy places but also offer this great atonement for the people. It was a, a once-for-all type of sacrifice. But that sacrifice was, brought, was done inside the camp. They brought the bull in and slaughtered it inside the camp. And after the sacrifice, the bodies were taken out and burned. But Jesus was... Sh- shamed and scorned and reproached so perfectly that he was not even slaughtered within the camp. He was taken outside the camp to be slaughtered as the Lamb of God, as the perfect rejection of both God and man. And having been put to death, his body wasn't burned and it didn't and it wasn't destroyed his body didn't see decay. It was raised to, in the power of, a, of an endless life, an indestructible life. So it is perfectly efficacious, but also perfectly powerful in its working. It is the perfect image of God's acceptance of this sacrifice. Fourth thing we can say is that Jesus, by going outside the camp, was the perfect purifying sacrifice. So those sacrifices that were where the blood was brought into the holy places, that purified the 
earthly tent, which our author in Hebrews has told us these were earthly copies of the heavenly realms. But Jesus, his blood was sprinkled on the heavenly realities. He's purified heaven itself for our entrance. But also the blood that was brought into the earthly tent purified or sanctified the priests. The priests had to be set apart by blood. They had to be purified, or the word is sanctified. But here it says um, in verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people, the people, all the people, purifying them for service and worship, purifying them as priests. So in Christ Jesus, he has purified not only heaven itself, so that we may enter, but he has purified all of his people to be able to serve as priests in God's presence. And fifth, he is this perfect sacrifice, and he's perfectly purified us so that we can eat of his sacrifice. So it says, verse 10, we have an altar, or another way of saying that is we have a sacrifice from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. Those priests could not eat the purifying sacrifice, but we have a sacrifice that we can eat. That's what we celebrate in this Lord's Supper, is that we are feasting on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by faith, which means... We are identified with his sacrifice. We are showing a picture that we have peace with God and we are celebrating this lavish grace of God turning the most heinous, wicked violence of the cross into the glorious salvation of his people forever and ever. And we can celebrate that meal because God has prepared us to be priests through the blood of Jesus and Jesus has offered himself as that sacrifice. So then the final thing is, we must go out to him. Jesus left the camp and was put to death there, but he's not returned. He's forever outside the camp. And it says, verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for us to partake of this meal by faith. In order to have the benefits of Christ, we must leave the camp and we must go to him. So what, what does that mean? What does it mean to go outside the camp? Well, I think there's two things that we can say. The first is that we need to realize that uh, th this aspect of abandoning the idea of external ritual worship uh, as replacing the reality of grace in Jesus Christ. It's good for the heart to be in, um, nourished by grace, to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Um, brothers and sisters, is your hope that you do the work of worship, that you come to worship and sing the songs and pray the prayers and read the readings and partake of the sacraments and all those things, is your hope in 
doing those things, or is your hope in Christ? In Christ, we're not saved by the work of worship. We respond with worship because of the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. So we leave that behind. But secondly, and probably more importantly, we go outside the camp by leaving behind our worldly hope. Worldly hope. We long for community and acceptance and safety and security and the world offers lots of different options and they tug at our hearts and they capture our eyes but we must fix our eyes on Jesus it's like that passage we read in the law like nothing can capture our hearts and our devotion more than Christ we must go to him and leave the things in the camp behind now this this doesn't mean that we leave behind our worldly associations. There's a, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, he made this statement, which was just kind of a, an offhanded remark, but it is a startling and important statement. He had said, he, he said, I wrote to you in my earlier letter not to associate with the sexually immoral. But then he says, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He says, not at all. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying abandon all sin from your life. In fact, Jesus said just the, different, just the opposite. He said, I am setting you, I am putting you in the world. You are to be in the world, but not of the world. You are to be in the world, but different you are to be a city on a hill. You are to be salt in the midst of a bland and decaying culture. You are to be light in the midst of darkness. You are to be a distinct and visible difference. Our identity and hope and practice cannot be driven by this idea of wanting to fit in or blend in in the midst of the culture. We need to shine. We're told to shine like stars in the midst of a dark world. That is, that is the calling for us as Christians. But that comes at a cost, brothers and sisters, doesn't it? That means that we take on a new identity. Our identity is in Christ, and our practice is driven in submission to him because he is our king and our savior. But that comes at a cost. That means that we must leave those things that tug at our hearts. We must be willing to embrace the reproach of those very same people in our lives that we want their attention, we want their love, and we want their acceptance. We need to be willing to bear the reproach of Christ because he bore the reproach for us. It's a all this is to say is that to be a Christian is costly. It is costly. It is not an easy calling. It is a calling to come and to die. But it's worth it. Because he says, For here we have no lasting city. There is nothing here that will last, but we seek a city that is to come.
And that city to come is in Christ. But we have to, we have to go to him outside the camp and meet him there. So the only way to this city is through Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to this city is in Christ. So we, we must come to Christ. It's a, it's a call to come or to go. We have to make that choice. Jesus said, come to me, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will. But to come to him means that we have to leave behind those past affections and that security and that hope in this life. But beloved, this is the only place, this is the only place where there is true safety. Here is a place where we are going to our true priest, our true high priest, who understands us. We are bearing, we're not, we're not bearing a new reproach. We're, we're enduring, we're bearing the approach he endured. And the reproach we face is nothing compared to what he endured. He understands us perfectly. He did that so that he could understand us perfectly. And so that he could call us to that reproach that he might call us out of the world. He understands, he empathizes, he prays for you. But he's also our king, and he promises to protect us. He has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. There's true hope, there's true safety, there's true food there. Jesus feeds us with himself, and that's the only place where there is true salvation. So, beloved, can you do that? Can you, can you go out of the, of the camp to Christ? Can you turn your back on all that you love, all your hope, all your security to find true hope and true security? Can, are, you, are you able to live as an outcast and an exile for the sake of Christ. He loved you more than his own life. Can you love him more than your own life? Can you live for him boldly and visibly and audibly in the midst of the world and face the scorn and rejection and reproach from the very people that you hope will prove of you. The last thing, beloved, is just to remember that he has made us priests. We read elsewhere that he has made us into a royal priesthood. Every one of us has been made a priest, which means we need to live as priests. We've been made holy. So our God says, be holy, for I am holy. We've been made holy. We must live holy. He's, he has given us this feast of the body and blood of his son. We must feast on it. We must identify ourselves with this sacrifice. And we are given new sacrifices. 
They're right there in our passage. Verse 15, he says, Through him, then, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We are to acknowledge his name. That is the sacrifice of praise. Even when that acknowledgement brings us scorn. But also, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As priests, we offer these sacrifices. These are the the priestly works that God has given for us to do. These generous hearts, these hearts that love the Lord God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourself and are willing to give of ourselves to the Lord and to one another. These are the sacrifices that God has given to us. This is acceptable worship, things that are pleasing to him. Brothers and sisters, we seek a city that is to come. We seek a city with permanent foundations in the presence of our God, and that city is ours in Christ. But to endure to glory means to embrace Christ. But to endure in Christ means to embrace the reproach that he endured. Jesus Christ endured the reproach for the joy that was set before him. He scorned the shame of the cross. So shall we, for the joy that is set before us, let us embrace the scorn of Christ as we head to our heavenly home. Beloved, in this way, God is leading us to our heavenly home where we will experience the joy and glory of his presence forever and ever. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your, for your grace. Father, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to be reproached. We want to be accepted. We thank you that you have perfectly accepted us in your son, Jesus Christ, and we have permanent acceptance in him and a permanent home and permanent security and safety and glorious provision. Father, help our hearts to receive that as enough and more than enough, abundant and far more abundant than we could ever ask or imagine. Lord, turn our hearts to you. Help us to be willing to bear the reproach of Christ in the midst of this world that we might give you glory and we might bear witness to your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.